One day, when Jesus was praying, and when he had finished, one of the disciples asked, Rabbi, teach us to pray, just like John taught his disciples. And Jesus said to them, When you pray, say, Abba God, hallowed be your name. May your reign come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive our sins, as we too forgive everyone who sins against us. And don't let us be subject to the test. Jesus said to them, suppose one of you has a friend, a neighbor, and you go to your neighbor at midnight and say, lend me three loaves of bread because friends of mine on a journey have come to me and I have nothing to set before them. And then your neighbor says, leave me alone. The door is already locked and the children and I are in bed. I can't get up to look after your needs. I tell you, though your neighbor will not get up to give you the bread out of friendship. Your persistence will make your neighbor get up and give you as much as you need. And that's why I tell you, keep asking and you'll receive. Keep looking and you'll find. Keep knocking and the door will be opened for you. For whoever asks, receives. Whoever seeks, finds. And whoever knocks is admitted. What parents among you will give your child a snake if that child asks for a fish? Or a scorpion if that child asks for an egg? So if you, with all of your flaws, know how to give your children good things, how much more will our heavenly Abba give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? This is one of our sacred teachings. Thanks be to God. Once someone told me a story about a man who died and went to heaven where he met St. Peter at the pearly gates. And as we all know by now, that is the cue that you're either in for a bad joke or some bad theology. And in this case, it was the latter. St. Peter led the man to a heavenly warehouse filled with filing cabinets. And on each drawer was inscribed a name. There was a drawer for every human being who had ever lived. So the man searched and searched until he found his own. And as he opened it, he wept. For inside was a list of every blessing God wanted to bestow on him had he only prayed with enough faith. And this is what we in the preaching business call a bad story. It shapes our theological imaginations in some distorted ways. But it was stories like these, accompanied by some select Bible verses, that convinced me at a young age that prayer was, as best I could tell, a way to talk God into giving us what we wanted. Texts like the one we have today, informed by stories like the one I just shared, left me thinking that the trick to getting what you wanted was to annoy God enough like a toddler in the back seat. You ask and you seek and you knock until God says, yes, okay, here are the goldfish. Please stop talking. I wish I could love anything as much as my son loves goldfish. Or maybe in a slight variation on the theme, you had to pray to God until you proved that you were faithful enough to deserve whatever it was you asked for. It was like there was some magic unknown number of petitions that middle school Zach needed to make before God would say, you know what, Zach, you do have enough faith. You can have a girlfriend now. 
That was mostly what I prayed for. <laughs> that and Legos, but I digress. Praying to this God feels like praying to Santa Claus or to a vending machine, hoping that just the right combination of words, actions, and emotions can achieve the desired result. This God becomes an idol. It's, it's part of the programs that our egos put into place to help us get what we want. And to be fair, this is rooted in a long and universal religious tradition. It's even found in some of our own scriptures. And prayers rooted in this tradition usually go something like this. We offer some kind of sacrifice to appease the gods. It earns us good fortune or good weather or health or victory or so on. And the gods would communicate back to humans through oracles who would say either, good job, you made the gods happy, or nope, keep trying, the gods are still angry. And so it goes. I mean, the names have changed, but for many people, this is still the most popular script for prayer. But then, there's Jesus, the walking counter-narrative to all bad theological scripts. Rabbi Jesus, unlike the purveyors of popular religion, never seems to be interested in helping us play our ego games. Instead, he is in that blessed, annoying habit of exposing our hollow pursuits for exactly what they are. It's tempting to see prayer as part of the business of improving ourselves. But the God to whom we pray is not in that business. God is in the business of helping us die to ourselves until we can touch what is real. God does not take us on a journey upward to find that thing we need to finally make us happy, but rather on the road that takes us down deeper and deeper until we have eyes to see the eternal beneath it all, until we find our true selves, until we enter the kingdom of God. No. Jesus confronts our notion of prayer and offers us instead a kind of prayer that invites us on that journey with God, on that downward, honest, vulnerable quest to touch what is real. It won't let us avoid discomfort but rather takes us right through our addictions, our habits, through the lies we want to tell about ourselves and others, through death itself until we find resurrection life at the heart of all things. Prayer, Jesus suggests, is that which brings us into the kingdom of God, which is always as near as your own breath. Jesus was always going off by himself to pray, to the temple, in the wilderness, off into seclusion and silence, and this seemed to make the disciples curious. The disciples were probably well-versed in Jewish prayers. They knew the right words, the familiar techniques of spreading their hands or lying prostrate before God. They knew what to do to win God's favor and get what they needed because that was the ancient prayer script that had been handed to them, but there was something different about the way that Jesus prayed. And they needed to know what it was. What was this way of prayer that gave him peace even as a boat was being swamped in a storm? What was this way of prayer that dissolved his fear as he confronted authorities or walked right into the shady parts of town to talk to lepers? 
What was this way of prayer that made this man shine so brightly with love in a world so full of darkness? Rabbi, they eventually confronted him. Teach us how to pray. Because we thought we knew, but I don't think we do. And then with two words, Jesus sets to work rewriting that ancient script. Our Father. That's the beginning of the prayer. And it sets the tone for everything to follow. I once had a professor who took a trip to Israel. And after spending the morning walking around Jerusalem, he stopped to rest. And as he sat, he observed a young family sitting nearby. The youngest boy in this family, probably no more than three or four, was trying to get the attention of his dad, whose attention was elsewhere. Abba, the boy cried out. Abba, Abba, Abba. And as my professor listened, he recognized that word that's so often on Jesus' lips. Our Abba. Prayer, Jesus seems to teach, begins, progresses, and ends in an intimate relationship with the eternal. But not the kind of quid pro quo relationship that the old scripts seem to imply. He doesn't try to flatter God with, oh, my master, or oh, great unapproachable divine, but with the simple, relational, collective, our Abba. Loving father, mother of this whole world family, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, he continues, with a line that's actually a lot more dangerous than a lot of church people like to admit. N.T. Wright points out that when Jesus spoke this line, there were no shortages of kingdoms, jealous kingdoms, which is not any different than the world we're in right now. There's the kingdom or the rule or the reign of the state, be it Rome or the United States. There's the reign of religion, be it Judaism or Christendom. And then you have the kingdom of wealth or of capitalism. And on a smaller scale, you have my kingdom and you have your kingdom. These personal realms over which we rule as sovereign and our will is done. And each of these kingdoms demands loyalty, demands obedience, and some level of sacrifice. And so to call for the coming of another kingdom, the kingdom of our Abba, is not innocuous. It's subversive. It's dangerous. Because it threatens the authority of each of these other kingdoms. And kingdoms, we know, do not take kindly to being threatened. We know how the story of Jesus unfolds. Your kingdom come. Jesus calls for the uncovering of an alternative kingdom, for the realm of all that looks to God as ruler. It's the dimension in which love reigns, in which life is served. It is an ever-present reality at the core of all things that cannot be shaken and cannot be killed, but it is covered by our illusions, by our fears, by our egos, but it can't be destroyed. To enter the kingdom of God is to enter that place where all other kingdoms and identities have proven empty and impermanent. It's the place where there's no longer male or female, slave or Greek, Jew or Greek, Gay or straight, black or white, but all are one 
To Jesus, it seems, prayer is a process whereby we seek out and enter the kingdom of God. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, he goes on. Not enough bread to last a lifetime. Not enough to ensure our safety and comfort while others go without. But bread enough to meet our need. Give us, he prays simply, the manna we cannot get on our own. Food or otherwise. To strengthen us for this work of being alive. And forgive our sins as we forgive everyone indebted to us. Hearing this line, I'm always reminded of the scene from William P. Young's The Shack, which I know some of you probably have mixed feelings about. That's fine. In this scene, a man is asked to sit in judgment of his father, a cruel person with whom he never had a good relationship. And the task seems easy. A retributive sense of justice burns in his chest. That is until... For a few moments, the man is given the ability to see his father through God's eyes. And what he sees is his father as a young boy being shouted at by his own father. The seeds of anger and violence being watered in him. Through God's eyes, full of understanding and compassion, judgment becomes far more tricky. From the perspective of eternity, is it even possible to withhold forgiveness? Through eyes that have seen everything, that saw us as infants in our parents' arms, who watched as we were hurt by the world, as we inherited false stories about ourselves and our neighbors, through eyes that saw us put layers of pain over the image of God, is it possible to hold on to debts? Forgive us our sins, Jesus prays. For we, too, forgive everyone who sins against us. And then Jesus concludes, Do not bring us into the time of trial. Don't let us be subject to the test. Did you know that last month, just last month, Pope Francis actually changed this line in the liturgy of the Catholic Church? Protestants, as you can imagine, were in a pious uproar you can't just change the Bible, they said. One article even started, oh, lead us not into mistranslation. <laughs> but in his defense, Pope Francis told the media, it's not a good translation because it speaks of a God who induces temptation. I'm the one who falls. It's not God pushing me into a time of trial. And Abba doesn't do that. And Abba helps you get up. In other words, God doesn't send suffering your way, doesn't sit on a cloud thinking up trials and tests to put you through in order to know how faithful you are or help you learn some lesson. That is not the way of the eternal spirit of love. Suffering comes. Conflict comes. Pain comes unavoidably, all by itself. But it is the spirit who redeems it who gives it meaning. It's the realm of God that strengthens us to endure it, even to grow in the midst of it. Pope Francis, therefore, adjusts it. He retranslates it into, do not let us fall into temptation. Or perhaps we might even go so far as to say, when the time of trial comes, and it will, 
may we not fall. And this is the prayer of Jesus. It's simple. It's honest. These are the words that he gave us that day to orient us in reality, to move us downward through our false selves and into that within us, within the world, which is real, eternal, the kingdom of God. Great. Now we have the right words, I imagine the disciples thought, at least some of them. Peter, for sure. But of course, it's not about getting the words right, is it? It never has been. That would be to totally miss the point. Because emperors, kings, presidents, and priests have all gotten this new script just right and have yet still managed to avoid ever really joining God in this work of prayer. So Jesus doesn't just leave it there. He keeps painting the picture beyond the comfortable edges of their frame. If you're going to pray like me, Jesus continues, those words are only any good if you are using them in a quest to diligently seek God's spirit. Suppose one of you has a neighbor, Jesus starts again, and you go to your neighbor at midnight and say, lend me three loaves of bread because friends of mine on a journey have come to me and I have nothing to set before them. And then your neighbor says, leave me alone. The door is already locked and the children and I are in bed. I can't get up to look after your needs. I tell you, though the neighbor will not get up to give you bread out of friendship, your persistence will make the neighbor get up and give you as much as you need. That's why I tell you, keep asking and you'll receive. Keep looking and you'll find. Keep knocking and the door will be opened. Because whoever asks receives, whoever seeks finds, and whoever knocks is admitted. What parents among you, he asked, would give your child a snake when the child asks for a fish? Or a scorpion when the child asks for an egg? You know this, and with all of your flaws, you know how to give your children good things. So how much more will our heavenly Abba give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? process of prayer, no matter what words we use, is the process of asking, of seeking, of knocking. And if we set out on that quest, Jesus assures us we will find the Holy Spirit, which is the point and purpose of all prayer. It is only through prayer that we will find that which connects us in this world to that which is eternal to the fullness of things that cannot be hurt, cannot be killed, and cannot be shaken. It's only through prayer that we will find that which opens our eyes to the fact that this life means something, that the pain means something. It's only through prayer that we will find that which brings us back to the disregarded truth that you and everyone around you is worthy of total, unconditional love. It's only through prayer that we will find that which gives us words to set captives free and lead oppressed people into liberation. It's only through prayer that we will find that which gives us the strength to stand up and say, this isn't right. This can't go on. This has to change. This is what makes the quest worth it to keep knocking. Keep seeking, keep asking until you find it, until you're tuned to it, until you become possessed by it. 
Prayer is a journey that takes us through places we never wanted to go, to give up things that we thought we were never capable of giving up, to die in ways we never thought we could die until we find that kingdom anew. And maybe it happens all at once. Or maybe it happens in a million small ways, in a million small places, until we are, piece by piece, resurrected into the image of Christ. Because this process of prayer is the process of entering the kingdom of God and allowing the Spirit to take hold. So here's the question, children of God. How will you pray? Richard Foster once wrote, countless people pray far more than they know. Often they have such a stained glass image of prayer that they fail to recognize that what they are experiencing as prayer is prayer, and so condemn themselves for not praying. But there's a language in which you, in all of your unique you-ness, can speak these words of Jesus, and it well might not be in the traditional language of a morning devotional. Will you speak them in the language of silence, God's first language? Or do you pray with your feet, walking, running, dancing, each step and motion connecting you with what is real and putting the world into perspective? Do you meet God in ancient liturgies or in the words of scripture? Do you meet God in music, in the reverberating notes of a pipe organ? or the piercing cadence of an electric guitar? Is it through broken bread and poured out wine, chips and salsa, an Ave Maria or an Our Father? Because the music of the universe is playing all around us. And we have to learn what it means for us to throw open the windows, to let it in, to move to it. And it's there in that place that we will find peace beyond all understanding. It's there in that place that we will find meaning in this whirlwind of chaos. And it's there in that place that we will become repairers of a broken world, co-creators of a new earth. It's there that we will become the body of Christ.